Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. This episode is a preview of the upcoming 2021-2022 term of the United States Supreme Court. Our special guest is Robert K. Cry, a founding partner of the law firm of Molo Lampkin LLP. Mr. Cry represents clients before the U.S. Supreme Court, has authored more than 40 Supreme Court briefs, and served as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia. Welcome back, Mr. Cry. Thanks for speaking with us today. My pleasure, Jeff. The 2021-2022 term of the U.S. Supreme Court begins on Monday, October 4th. Mr. Cry, before we look forward to the new term, let's first take a look back at the 2020-2021 term. There were decisions in the last term that many believe will have significant implications for investors. One was the court's decision in Goldman Sachs versus the Arkansas Teacher Retirement System. Mr. Cry, tell us about that decision and why some commentators declared it as a big win for investors. Sure, Jeff. Goldman Sachs was indeed an important decision for securities class action litigation. The court actually decided multiple issues in the case. One of them was a win for investors, and the other one was a win for companies. The case concerned Goldman Sachs's public representations about its conflict of interest policies. In securities filings, Goldman made statements like, our clients' interests always come first, and we have extensive procedures and controls that are designed to identify and address conflicts of interest. According to plaintiffs, however, Goldman engaged in some seriously conflicted transactions, most notoriously a collateralized debt obligation known as Abacus. Goldman marketed the CDO as an opportunity to buy shares in a bundle of mortgages. Behind the scenes, though, it allowed a hedge fund manager, John Paulson, to handpick the mortgages for the CDO and then bet that the CDO would fail by short-selling it. When the SEC brought an enforcement action that revealed those details, Goldman's stock price dropped. Investors in Goldman then filed suit and moved to certify the case as a class action. They invoked the fraud on the market presumption from Basic versus Levinson. That case allows plaintiffs to rely on the integrity of the market price for a stock to establish a presumption that they relied on the defendant's misrepresentations. Goldman sought to rebut that presumption of reliance by claiming that its representations about conflict of interest policies were too generic to have affected its stock price. The Supreme Court granted review in the case on two issues. The first was whether Goldman could defeat the fraud on the market presumption based on the generic nature of its statements. The second issue concerned the nature of that presumption. Plaintiffs contended that Goldman bore both the burden of production and the burden of persuasion to rebut the fraud on the market presumption. Goldman claimed it had only a burden of production, so once it produced some evidence tending to refute the presumption, the burden would shift back to plaintiffs. On the first question, the court agreed with Goldman. It acknowledged that the generic nature of misrepresentations may be relevant to merits issues like materiality. But the evidence was also relevant at class certification. If a company makes a very broad and generic misstatement, it might not affect the stock price at all, severing the link to plaintiff's reliance. 
the Supreme Court wasn't sure whether the Court of Appeals had adequately considered the generic nature of the misstatements for that purpose, so it remanded the case for further consideration. On the second question, the court agreed with the plaintiffs. Citing prior cases, it held that the fraud on the market presumption applies not only to the burden of production, but also to the burden of persuasion. Overall, therefore, the case was a mixed bag for investors. The first ruling favors corporate defendants. Once a plaintiff obtains class certification, it is a long road to summary judgment. So any rule that enables defendants to raise defenses sooner is pretty desirable from their perspective. The Supreme Court's ruling permits defendants to rebut the presumption of reliance at the class certification stage, not just with event studies and other quantitative evidence, but also with qualitative claims about the generic nature of the alleged misstatements. The second ruling on the burden of persuasion favors investors. After Goldman, it is not enough for a defendant to produce some evidence refuting price impact. The defendant must persuade the court, more likely than not, that the misstatements did not affect the stock price. One could argue that that burden matters only where the evidence is in equipoise, but the reality is there are a lot of close cases, so that burden does matter. And in that respect, investors came out ahead. Mr. Cry, now let's look forward to the new term of the Supreme Court beginning on October 4th. In your opinion, what case on the Supreme Court's docket do you predict will have the biggest impact on investors? Great question, Jeff. There's one case, Hughes versus Northwestern University, that will be argued on December 6th. It has broad implications for pension funds and investors generally. Hughes involves ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which regulates employee benefit plans. ERISA imposes fiduciary duties on plan administrators and other parties, including a duty to act with care, skill, prudence, and diligence in administering the plan and the investments that it offers. The plaintiffs in Hughes are employees of Northwestern University, participated in its 403B plan, and that's essentially a 401K plan, but for a nonprofit entity. The employees claimed that the university violated its fiduciary duties in administering the plan in multiple respects. First, by allowing the plan to incur excessive record-keeping fees, and then also by offering investment options that charged excessive management fees. The district court dismissed and the Seventh Circuit affirmed. Among other things, the Court of Appeals held that Northwestern could not be liable for the excessive management fees of some of the investment options because the plan offered employees a range of investment options to choose from, and at least some of those options did not have excessive fees. The Supreme Court granted review to consider the case. Hughes is an important case for CII members for a number of reasons. For one thing, many CII members are themselves pension funds whose plan administrators will be directly affected by the court's decision. One amicus in Hughes, for example, is the Service Employees International Union, whose pension fund is a member of CII. The union's amicus brief makes a number of interesting points about how a rule that encourages plan administrators to offer a lengthy menu of investment options 
can have negative consequences. Studies show, for example, that excessively long menus of options cause something called alphabeticity bias. That's where investors just pick whatever option happens to be listed first. Excessively long menu options also tend to discourage employees from participating in plans altogether. Even outside the context of employee benefit plans, Hughes is a helpful reminder to all investors that fee arrangements deserve careful scrutiny. Of course, most institutional investors are far more sophisticated than an employee picking funds for his 401k. But even in the institutional context, information asymmetries and other factors can lead to less than optimal fee arrangements. I'll be watching to see how this case turns out. Mr. Cry, finally, are there any investor-related issues you see as likely to come before the Supreme Court over the longer term? And what types of cases should investors be on the lookout for? Sure. Well, one issue the Supreme Court is definitely interested in is discovery stays in state court securities litigation. Earlier this year, the court granted review to consider that issue in a case called Pivotal Software versus Superior Court. The court was set to hear arguments in that case on November 9th, but in late August, the parties settled and the court took the case off its calendar. The court will now surely be on the lookout for another case in which to decide that issue. By way of background, in the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995, Congress enacted a provision that generally requires courts to stay discovery in securities lawsuits until the plaintiff has survived a motion to dismiss. On its face, that provision applies to any private action under the federal securities laws. But courts have disagreed over whether the provision applies to federal securities claims that are brought in state court rather than federal court. That question took on added significance after the court decided a case called Cyan versus Beaver County Employees Retirement Fund in 2018. That case held that even though Congress channeled most securities class actions to federal court, plaintiffs could still bring claims under the 1933 Securities Act in state court instead. That act permits investors to sue issuers and underwriters for false statements in public offerings, even without any proof of intent to defraud. By allowing plaintiffs to choose whether to file those claims in state or federal court, Cyan gave added importance to procedural differences between the two forums. One potentially big difference is the availability of early discovery. In federal court, everyone agrees that the PSLRA presumptively bars a discovery pending a motion to dismiss. But state court rules often have no similar prohibition. So if the PSLRA's discovery stay does not apply, plaintiffs can take discovery even though a motion to dismiss is pending. That is a significant advantage for securities plaintiffs. Discovery may reveal information that can flesh out the plaintiff's claims, permitting plaintiffs to amend the pleadings to overcome deficiencies that might be alleged in a motion to dismiss. On the other hand, discovery can be very costly for corporate defendants who typically object to being subject to those burdens before a court has even decided the sufficiency of the pleadings. If the Supreme Court ultimately holds that the PSLRA's discovery stay applies only in federal court, 
that will create a major incentive to file these cases in state court instead. As I mentioned, the Supreme Court was poised to decide this question in pivotal software, but that case is now off the calendar following a settlement. Merely by granting review in that case, the court signaled its interest in this issue. It is a sure bet that other parties will now try to get the same issue in front of the court in a future case. That's not as easy as it sounds for a discovery question like this, which requires some real procedural maneuvering to tee up for Supreme Court review. But parties will certainly try, so keep an issue, keep an eye out for this issue to arise in a future case. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Robert K. Pry, founding partner of the law firm of Molo Lampkin, LLP. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at cii.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.